Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for your interest in working with um, landlords and tenants um, on an LAR basis. I know that many of you have already attended the first training, which was the basics in um, landlord-tenant law. If you did not and are interested in that, um, I'll talk to you a little bit later about some trainings that are available both through the Bar Association and through the Volunteer Lawyers Project. Uh, a big thank you to the Bar Association that is so supportive of our work and therefore our clients. They're putting on a series of trainings so that by the end of that, you will feel comfortable volunteering or um, getting paid to represent landlords and tenants in housing court and eviction actions. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, limited assistance representation and how it got started. Uh, there was a big movement long-term for what was called unbundling of legal services. It was found that folks could not get lawyers uh, or afford lawyers to take their entire case. And so we began to develop a project whereby the courts would approve appearing for either a day or a single event or a single part of an event, um, as long as the client was aware of that. This project was piloted in the probate and family court in Boston by VLP and through our pro bono work. Um, it was very successful. In addition to being a very good program for assisting people on a pro bono basis, many attorneys have made it the model for their practice um, to appear and multiple appearances in LAR, which we will talk about. Um, so I hope that as always, when you attend a training that prepares you to be a good volunteer, you can also use it for your own business. So in the pilot project with LAR, some of the things that came up to be a problem were that um, one, the courts wouldn't accept your withdrawal. So in LAR, you file a notice of appearance and before you even make that notice of appearance, you have in your hand from the client the notice of withdrawal. Uh, we were finding early on the judges didn't want you to be able to withdraw. Um, through the work with the courts, we were able to convince them that this project would surely fail if a person made an appearance thinking they were just there for an event and, um, and were stuck in the case. Another thing that happened was a little bit of a lack of understanding uh, amongst the attorneys using LAR on how specific you need to be in what you are appearing to do and what you are appearing for. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. Um, so the first thing, as with any client that you take, is um, assessing the case. And in housing court, we often look to see, does the person have defenses that they're going to be unable to get before the court on their own? Or are they a person who couldn't manage this process without them? And then we make a decision about whether or not we will appear for them. The first thing we do is have them sign an LAR retainer. Um, this is a fairly uh, involved document and you will certainly have access to VLP's uh, sample retainers. And it is where we explain to the client that we will only be assisting them for a limited appearance, for a single event, for a single option. When they sign that retainer, you need to be very specific with them, explaining what it means, what they have a lawyer for, and what they do not have a lawyer for. It's all about managing expectations. So, um, for example, you have a place on that retainer where you explain, I will be assisting you with. And if you say in that, um, advising you on your case and next steps and what your next steps are, and then you do one thing past that, you've basically made a full appearance in the case and will have to stay in. 
So at VLP, we do a series of LAR retainers. Um, a person comes up and we and wants to talk to us about their case and get advice, we do a retainer for advice. If during that advice, we decide that we are going to go with them for mediation, we do a retainer for mediation. If during that time we decide we're going to appear in court for them that day, we can do a retainer either for that appearance or for that day, um, ending at the end of the day or ending at the end of that appearance. If you appear for an event, then you would need to, if there is a continuance, you would need to attend the next event. So limiting it to that event for that day keeps your obligation narrow and manages the expectation of both the client and the court as to what they have a lawyer for. One of the things that we have found with the LAR is that oftentimes people are more willing to work out a reasonable settlement on both sides if they know you only have this lawyer to work with today. After this, you have a pro se litigant on the other side, or afterwards you are the pro se litigant. Um, so people are much more likely to um, work on a reasonable settlement if, um, if both sides are represented and they know that this is going to end. Um, one of the risks, again, I wanna, really wanna highlight this on the retainer, is that if you say, um, I will um, represent you today in this matter, or I will give you advice, and then you do one thing on that case outside of it. So the example I'll give is that you say you're going to um, assist them that day and advise them on their case, and then afterwards you go to look at their file at public housing, then they can argue that you've made a full appearance in the case and should attend all court matters. So again, limited retainer, um, narrowly drawn, and although it is inconvenient, it will behoove you to do multiple um, limited assistance representation appearances. And the other um, two documents in LAR are the appearance, um, which is the court document, the document to be filed with the court and a copy of which is to be given to the client. Also keep a copy for yourself. And that lets the court know that you're appearing for that event or that you are um, appearing for mediation only. Um, we have people go ahead and sign at the same time the notice of withdrawal um, to be able to be able to file that at the end of the event. You need to um, go to the website, the court's website, and go to the court in which you will be practicing to get their requirements for LAR. In some courts, uh, they require that you file uh, your certificate of training that you will be able to get after this training today. You can certify that you have had this training. Um, in others, when you file a notice of appearance, LAR, you are attesting as an officer of the court that you are certified and they accept that as your attestation. Um, the, um, the last thing I, I want to say about LAR is keeping your documents and how we handle that on a remote basis. Um, VLP has um, the ability to have people sign documents online and keep those. If you are doing cases for us, we will assist with that through our um, Attorney for the Day project or any other project for which you're doing pro bono work. Um, these we will keep in the file, but you also need to keep those as well. In addition, many um, attorneys have their own retainer in addition to the LAR retainer. 
um, take a good look at that and review it and see if it in any way contradicts or expands the scope of the representation. Because it, if it does, you want to stick with the LAR retainer or rework your personal retainer or letter of representation so that it accurately reflects what you are going to be um, doing for this client. So I think the catch words here, and then I'll turn it over to, um, to Larry and Adam, are managing expectations, both of the client and of the court, knowing what you're going to do, saying what you're going to do, writing what you're going to do, and having the client sign off on what you're going to do can make this a very successful experience and allow you to volunteer in a bite-sized way that, um, that fits with your practice and the time you have available. Um, so I will be talking to you again toward the end. Thank you so much and look through your materials, take a look at these and if you have questions, put them in the chat and um, I will be looking at those questions and uh, we'll all be available to answer them. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. So my portion of the panel is gonna be talking about some of the ethical considerations that you need to have in the back of your mind or more likely in the forefront of your mind when you're taking on an LAR representation. So the first is to accentuate that LAR is a limited exception to the broader rule, which is when you put in your appearance, you're in. You're in on the case 100% and you are representing that person as far as the court is concerned. So the only way you get around that is with this limited exception, which is the LAR program. So knowing that all the other obligations that you have as an attorney still apply. Rule 11 still applies. The rules of professional conduct still apply. Your requirements under your malpractice insurer still apply. LAR does nothing to absolve you of those requirements and what you need to do to represent this LAR client and are no different than your requirements if this was a private client that came in and was paying you a retainer and doing everything you need to do. So looking at the actual rule that allows this, trial court rule 16 for the allowance of limited assistance representation, it specifically says this is for discrete limited purposes if the limitation is reasonable under the circumstances and the client gives informed consent. Now, the phrase reasonable under the circumstances and gives conformed, informed consent are two pieces of what you really need to watch out for because reasonable under the circumstances means you have a duty to advise them in two respects. First, the underlying case, but also if LAR is appropriate for this situation. And also the informed consent part is with all the documentation that Joanna brought up in order to confirm that this is a limited representation, it's only for one or two things, and when those one or two things are done, you're out and that you and the client know that, and that is the informed consent. So piggybacking on that and looking at Rule 11, which still applies in full force and effect, Rule 11a says, the signature of an attorney to a pleading constitutes a certificate by him that he has read the pleading, that to the best of his knowledge, information, and belief, there is a good ground to support it, and that it is not interposed for delay. So taking that, your LAR representation isn't just to be a mouthpiece for the client. The client can't just come to you, get an LAR representation, and now has an attorney to proceed with any harebrained motion or frivolous 
court item that they want to pursue. It just doesn't work that way. You have an obligation to take a look at that and determine if there is value in proceeding like this. You have a duty under Rule 11 to do that. And if you violate those rules, sanctions can come against you. And you can't just say, well, I was only doing what my client wanted me to do. That's not how it works. You have to comply with all the rules of the ethics. So under the trial court rule though, there's a couple of pieces of language that need to be included in pleadings and ghostwriting. And the first is in a pleading or something like that filed with the court or an appearance in which you are gonna be appearing for, you need to have in that attorney for X party for the limited purpose of X court event. And that's just language that needs to be included. It's one of those things that you just have to put in there. So keep that in mind. And if you forget it, trial court rule 16 has it all in there. I love this phrase from the LAR manual that was put out. And I suggest everybody does grab this manual, take a look at it, peruse it, go to the parts about the courts that are important for you and take a look at it. In this instance, there's a section just on housing court and it'll help you out there. But a quote from that book is, LAR does not mean limited liability. The attorney remains responsible for the conduct of all the tasks which he or she undertakes, whether in the context of full service or limited scope. So the limited scope needs to be specifically and explicitly curtailed and hopefully put in writing so that everybody knows what your goal is there and what the representation is going to be. And that's where the informed consent comes in too. It's not just a term of art, it's to protect you and to protect the client and let everybody know what the expectations are of that. And so how do you do that? Well, you first wanna just specify it in any kind of written agreement you may have. The LAR manual recommends a kind of checklist that might show which things are there so that you can put it in writing and have the client sign it to show that this is what you're doing. But in addition to that, you probably wanna have your own signed fee agreement or engagement letter that also outlines what you're doing in explicit language so that you have as much documentation as possible to show that this is a very limited representation for one or two things. And after that, your representation is done. And in addition to those things, when you start a representation, as Joanna said, you must get the client to sign the appearance and the withdrawal at that time. Do not say, oh, we'll do the withdrawal later. Get that signed and executed at the time the representation begins so you have it so that when your representation is concluded, you can be out. So the limitations of scope though have to be reasonable. One example that they bring up in the manual is that you can't split the responsibilities of an LAR representation in a way that doesn't make sense. If a potential client comes to you and needs help with a case, and maybe there's a court hearing on summary judgment that they need help with, but then there's something smaller, and you say, oh, I'll help you out with the smaller thing, and you do the, you do the summary judgment or something like that, that's not really a good split for you and the client to try to figure out how to do this on a limited representation basis. You need to, under the rule, to consult them and 
figure out if the LAR representation you're being hired to do makes sense in the scheme of things and whether it makes sense going forward. So that means you have kind of a two-tiered two -tiered consultation and advice requirement. You first need to counsel them on the underlying case, but then also on whether LAR makes sense. Because again, if you are in a position where your limited assistance representation will not help matters or it's too late or you don't have the time to do what you need to do, you need to let the client know that and you can't take that on. You have a duty to counsel them on to whether LAR makes sense. If it's a situation where they really do need to hire full representation because it's gonna to be too, there's too much to deal with, can't do it limited, you have to say that. You can't put yourself in that position where later on down the road you may say, well, I did my little part under LAR and I'm done. It has to be, it has to be reasonable at the outset. As part of the rule two, you have a duty to advise clients that are there on other issues, even if you're not asked. So what does that mean? That means if a client comes to you and says, I need limited assistance representation to answer discovery in this case. And you say, sure, I can do that. Let's answer some discovery. But then as you're going through it and you're talking about the case, you realize that there's more going on. There's other things happening. There are landmines ahead that you see. You have to talk to the client about those landmines. You can't just put your head down and draft up the interrogatory answers and the document responses and say, I'm done. Your ethical duty is to bring those landmines that you as the attorney have identified to the client and let them know that situation is, is front and center and they need to address it. I like the example of lead paint because in housing court, you're gonna have a situation where you're gonna be counseling tenants on whether to enter into settlement agreements and things like that. And a lot of those settlement agreements may have a release of liability, a mutual release of liability saying, both sides, landlord and tenant, by this agreement hereby agree to release, remise, and forever discharge each other for any and all claims by and between us related to the tenancy. Okay, sounds good. So in your conversation though with the tenant perhaps, he or she says, oh yeah, I wanna get out anyway, I'm ready to settle this. The apartment's no good, it's got lead and my child has been feeling very sick, so we wanna get out. And you sign that agreement with the release language you've just released the landlord from a significant claim that the tenant had. And even though that wasn't what you were there for, even though you were brought in and you see that there's some habitability stuff and there's a breach of quiet enjoyment claim. And so you negotiate and settle the case based on those, the things that are staring you in the face, but you've just put the tenant in a horrible position because you've released the claim that is a potentially enormous claim on behalf of their child. And so that is a very drastic worst case scenario type situation for you to encounter. And you would usually through your diligence of asking questions about problems and things like that, you would have uncovered it. And usually people are more aware of the hazards of lead paint and things like that from the get go. So if they were in that situation, they probably would be aware of it and be cognizant to bring it to your attention and may have brought it to the landlord's attention beforehand and things like that. But that's just by way of an extreme example 
of what they mean when they say you have to consult and advise your client on things that even aren't in the front of what they're there for. You have to look a little bit deeper. And of course, anytime the scope of the representation changes, new paperwork needs to be established. You need to have a revised scope of representation, potentially a new fee agreement, new engagement letter, new appearance and new withdrawal, of course. And all of that should be a given. Anytime a new representation or a new event happens that you need to help out on, you can do it piecemeal, but each one of those pieces needs to be documented and that's for your protection and also again to make sure the expectations of the client are being met and everybody's on the same page. I would also advise that big decisions that happen during the case that you might be providing advice on or things like that get documented as well so that the client can't come back and say but you told me to do this when you specifically told them not to do that or something of that nature. So the normal rule, get it in writing, it helps everybody. And after the representation has concluded, I think it goes without saying, case closure letters, in addition to any withdrawal paperwork, because the withdrawal paperwork is pretty straightforward, it's pretty simple, but that's for the court more so than you and the client. So a case closure letter explicitly ending your involvement with the client and the case is also a good idea sometimes, most of the time. Okay. Let's see what else we got to talk about here. All right. So ghostwriting, that's something that you're allowed to do under LAR as well. You don't just have to show up to court and do things like that under LAR. LAR allows for consultations and ghostwriting. Now the consultations, that's been around forever. You've been able to pay an attorney or go in for a consult before LAR and you can still do it after LAR. It's not very different than what was happening beforehand. But ghostwriting, that's a little different because under LAR, that's allowed now. You can be hired to draft up a motion or respond to discovery or draft up discovery and do things like that and never have to appear, never have to do anything else except type it up, print it out, and you're done. So this requires, again, under the rule, language needs to be included in that pleading that says prepared with the assistance of counsel. But other than that, your name does not need to be anywhere on it. You don't need to sign it. You don't need to put your BBO number or address or anything else on that. You just need to make sure it says prepared with the assistance of counsel and then have the party sign it and then they have to file it. And that becomes a little bit of an issue because sometimes you may be worried that the thing that you prepared is not the thing that gets filed. And that can potentially be an issue. And so in some circumstances, it might make sense. And if you feel like this is something you wanna do, then you can have the party sign your pleading that you drafted, put your little stamp or put that part that says prepare with the assistance of counsel, but then you file it. And you can make that part of your value proposition that once the pleading is done, they sign it, but as part of the LAR fee or whatever you're doing, you'll actually make sure it gets to the proper court, the proper clerk gets docketed properly and everything else so that your client can be assured that what is happening is on the up and up and they're doing what they need to do. 
Okay, we've kind of gone over that the big benefit of LAR and one that you really need to make sure you take, it's, it's the number one reason why you should do LAR and that is the ability to get in and get out without court approval, without putting in for the entire case and everything that comes with it, which means you really need to be diligent about getting those appearances and withdrawal forms endorsed by the client and having them ready to go and being diligent about letting the court know that you are here on limited assistance representation and filing your withdrawal when you're done. In fact, my practice would always be in the beginning when you're introducing yourself to the court, you say so-and-so as limited assistance representation for so-and-so and go from there. That's more of the mechanics that Adam will touch on later. So I'll conclude by kind of giving my two cents on the ethics and liability considerations when we're talking about LAR. So LAR is a great way for less experienced, newer attorneys to get more experience and generate clients. But you have to be prepared to potentially be inefficient with your time because you have to do everything that you normally do as an attorney to get up to speed with the facts and the law in order to comply with the competency requirements. But then you also need to do all the stuff that LAR requires you to do, including advising them of the appropriateness of LAR, defining the scope of representation and things like that. And of course, just getting started, you're probably spending more time learning the law and the facts than otherwise. So it might be an inefficient use of your time, but it is a great way to get experience and build your client base and potentially get some money coming in. LAR is also great for experienced attorneys who have the experience and the efficiency built into their practice so that when a client comes in and says, I need X, Y, or Z, the attorney has seen it a dozen times before and knows exactly what to do to help, can bang it out quick for a flat fee or something like that, and it's no problem. They're good for that too. It's also good for pro bono work like the Volunteer Lawyers Project that Joanna is going to talk about a little later today too. LAR is great for that, allows somebody to come in on a volunteer basis, help out for the day, represent somebody just for the day, get in, get out, great. LAR is not good if your mentality is to be apathetic to the practice for a quick cash grab. If your mentality is, oh, I'll just do this as a quick LAR, or I'm just gonna bang this out real quick, or I'll show up and I'll take a look at the file 10 minutes before the hearing and I'll just look good in a suit in front of the judge and that's good enough. That is gonna get you into trouble because your risk is much greater than the reward for those private LAR clients. You could have, you have just as much exposure to malpractice, you have just as much exposure to Rule 11 sanctions, you have just as much, much exposure for BBO complaints. The court required full representation. If you're not minding your P's and Q's, you could be in for the whole case now. And negative online reviews even, that can affect too. If you go in there and you're not doing a diligent job for this person, they could just put your zero star AVO review or something like that. It's not worth it. It's not worth it in the long run, especially if you're a newer attorney just starting out and getting experience and things like that. So LAR, not good to try to make a couple bucks on the cheap and quick, but it's good in other circumstances. And as long as you maintain a diligent, competent practice that you're required to, 
LAR is no different than anything else. It just requires a couple of extra hoops. And I know I might have sounded like a scared straight type person after you heard everything that I had to say. You might be thinking, why would I ever do LAR? Well, the benefit is you get great experience and you really can grow a client base. And remember, these potential clients, they came to you for this. You helped them out. You did a great job. They're going to give you a call the next time they need an attorney for anything else. It doesn't matter if it's housing or something else. They're going to say, I remember that attorney that helped me out. I'm going to give them a call. They were great. And I'm going to give them a call for this other thing. So it's a way to get in-court experience, experience in the area of the law, and build your client base. That's what it's great for. And that's why we do it. But mind your P's and Q's, mind your ethics, and do what you need to do. And I'll kick it over to Adam. Adam, you're muted. <laughs> Most common Zoom mistake I think we all made <laughs> speaking before it. But thank you. Thank you, Larry. Um, I'm going to talk about LAR in the housing court and the other trial courts, with the exception of family court. I don't have any experience, in, uh, significant experience in family court, but Joanna can speak about that a little bit as well. I've, um, I got my start about 10 years ago after the financial crisis um, when I came down to a horrible place, horrible time to get out of law school. And I really used um, the volunteer experience at the housing court along with LAR. It was a great way for me to get my foot in the door. So I'm, I'm very grateful to it. I encourage everyone, especially newer lawyers and um, law students even, to take advantage of it. You can really get some great experience and really um, kind of learn, learn the practice of law, especially in a time when it's not the best for, um, for finding work. Um, LAR, as we talked about, it allows you to automatically withdraw from a case, and that's very important given that um, you don't have, given that with a full representation, you are at kind of the court's mercy for withdrawing from the case. A judge does not have to uh, let you out of the case, and I, that has happened to me. I have been in the case a lot longer than I wanted to under a full appearance. So that's a great advantage of LAR. It lets you do that. Um, it lets you kind of get out as you need to. Another just thing to keep in mind, especially in the housing court, is housing court very rarely does things on just solely on the papers. House, or housing court usually requires an appearance. So if you have a full appearance and you want to withdraw, you most likely will need to make an appearance before the court again. So the benefits of getting out on your own are very, are very, um, are very useful. LAR, I think, is also very good for clients. I think having an unlimited assistance attorney really gets clients to start thinking long-term about the case and about the advantages and disadvantages of continuing. And even one appearance could be enough to kind of moving the matter towards the resolution. Um, I use LAR in my, parent, in my own private practice today. I usually use it in three ways. The first way is I use it in a case where it's not really suitable for me to stay in the case for full time. So a good example of that is I'll help a tenant with a, um, a non-payment of rent case where there really aren't any good, really aren't very strong defenses and the job is really just to work out a repayment plan or work out an agreement for the tenant to leave. That's a great use of LAR. It's a limited assistance, a limited appearance. It works, either you're out of the case, you don't have to really go any further with it. Um, I'll also use it if I have to, if I'm asked to jump into a case, but I'm not really prepared to enter a full appearance for the case. A couple of weeks ago, I had a homeowner in a land court dispute, an adverse possession matter, um, retained me for a boundary matter, retained me for a preliminary injunction hearing. I wasn't ready to commit to the full case. I wasn't ready to prepare a full answer and go through all the defenses, but I had enough where I could help them with the injunction. So I entered a limited appearance for that. I said to the clients, once I'm up to speed, I'll certainly talk about helping you for the entire case. And the last time I'll use it is purely for um, financial reasons. 
um, like most attorneys, I'll ask for a retainer as part of the case. If you have a client that isn't ready to do a full retainer, but they need assistance right away, you can do a limited appearance for the one part of the case they need help with and just simply say, as soon as you're ready to commit to the rest of the retainer, we can talk about a full appearance there. So it's very, it's very useful for private, um, private practice. And I think LIR gets a reputation um, as being mostly pro bono, pro bono work, but it works very well in the private practice as well. Um, the procedure for LAR is generally the same in most courts. As a practical matter, you always want to introduce yourself as an LAR attorney. You want to sign any paperwork um, and, and, and note that you are doing as limited assistance representation. Any correspondence with opposing counsel and with the court, it's always a good idea to um, refer to that as well. Uh, the biggest piece of advice I have is that LAR has a, a very poor reputation among landlord attorneys in particular. Um, LAR often is a kind of, um, it's kind of mocked and kind of thought poorly of because LAR at times is used by a number of attorneys to jump in and out of cases. And if you're on the other side, which I'm, I often am, it can be a little frustrating knowing who, who really is the attorney and what part of the case they're handling. So we encourage you to break that, break that stereotype, work really closely with the opposing attorney. Um, if, if you're gonna enter in limited appearance, be clear about what it was, assist the opposing counsel with talking with your client or the subsequent attorney, but you don't want to do it in a, sh in a shroud of mystery. You really want to be forthcoming with both, certainly the court, but anyone who's on the other side. Um, so I'm going to talk just briefly about how LAR can be used in the trial courts across Massachusetts. I don't have experience in family court, but it's a perfect use for family court if you have interest in, in any of those practice areas. But housing court, I think, probably is where LAR is used the most. Um, one of the great advantages is that every housing court judge has seen LAR. They're very familiar with the process, so they're going to know exactly what, what's expected of you and what you're looking to do. I think the biggest use for LAR is um, assisting a, a, pro, a pro se client with preparing an answer. I think any tenant who's facing an eviction case should file an answer of some, some, of some sort, um, regardless of what they want to do with the case. But you can certainly help file an answer. You can help with doing a motion to remove a default. Um, right now, there's a standing order in the housing court that gives the court a lot of leeway in granting defaults. Once that expires, you can still get a default lifted under the right circumstances, and that's a great use for limited assistance representation. I think the most important part, above all, the single most thing you can do is help with a mediation. Mediation is available in every single housing court. It's a great use of time. I teach a landlord-tenant class for, for new landlords, and I tell them the same thing, take advantage of it. You can really get a lot out of it. An attorney can make a really, a really big difference in that, so I would encourage you always to look at a mediation. Um, discovery disputes, if the case proceeds forward, you can help with a motion to compel. And if it re gets to trial stage, whether it be a bench or, in, in certain cases, a jury trial, you can certainly take on a trial. Just you know, be sure it's obviously a much bigger commitment. There was a standing order in the housing court a while ago. I don't know if it's still in place, but it did allow, I believe it was if you were entering a limited assistance, you were allowed to get a continuance for a trial. I'm, I'm not sure if it's still in place now, but I think if you are entering it and the matter is going to trial, you can certainly request it. And I think a lot of courts would give it very, very serious consideration. Um, I think this the program next week is going to talk about kind of traps for the unwary, but landlord tenant work. But going off what Larry said about keeping your clients surprised of, of kind of future things in a case, you want to emphasize that deadlines are incredibly important in housing court. They're much quicker 
There isn't much room for leeway, particularly with the appeal period. The appeal period is 10 days, it's set in stone, and there's not much that can be done if it's missed. So I would always emphasize to your client, if you're leaving a case, to be aware of that. They want to check the docket. Um, they want to check it online, call the clerk's office, and just make sure they keep appraisal of the state. You never want to have a client in a position that isn't clear about kind of the next, next part of the case. Housing court, or I'm sorry, limited assistance representation is also, can also be used in district court or the municipal court for Boston. Evictions now are, or the housing courts now statewide. So majority of residential evictions are getting filed in housing court, but you have the option of transferring one to housing court. So if you're in a district court matter, you can certainly, certainly assist with that. If it stays in district court, and there are advantages sometimes for doing that, the whole process of helping a tenant really applies the same as in district court. Um, I'm predicting that the next couple of months, commercial evictions are gonna be significantly on the rise, um, particularly among small businesses here in Massachusetts. Commercial evictions aren't allowed in housing court. They're generally only brought in district court. That can be an area of practice as well too. You can assist a, a tenant facing a commercial eviction with possibly a repayment plan or, or something of that sort. But just be aware commercial evictions are different than residential. There are some significant differences. And then going and staying in district court and the BMC collections are also very popular, probably the most popular area of law outside of evictions. With a collection matter, a debt collection matter, generally you can help with um, repayment plans. So you can help negotiate with a debt, a debt collection attorney and see if you can work something out. In land court, um, limited assistance representation is becoming more common. It's now actually, I believe it's now required that for all case management conferences, I believe it, you know, attorneys now required to serve an opposing party with notice that LAR is an available option. For every land court case, a case management conference is scheduled automatically, usually within a month or so of the filing. I consider it one of the most important parts of the case. It's where you set up a case schedule, you discuss the, what you expect out of the case, and you really get a chance to work with the attorney and the judge to go forward on the matter. So I think it's incredibly important if you ever have a client who um, is facing a, a land court action, I would encourage your services for the case management conference. I think it's a great way to kind of get the ball rolling in such a matter. Um, land court's also popular for tax foreclosure cases. Um, we haven't seen obviously given with COVID, they haven't been very popular, but they, they likely will start up again. Usually for a tax foreclosure, again, it's a matter of working out a repayment plan if that's possible. And land court also uh, is very subject to a lot of injunctions, certainly on the foreclosure side, um, which is common. You have a lot of people in foreclosure matters who come in who are trying to do injunctions, but certainly on boundary disputes and anything involved in property, again, a great area where you can step in on a limited basis. Um, superior court, the sky's the limit with superior court. Obviously, every civil action you can conceive of is could be brought in superior court. They're not limited assistance, I don't believe is as common, but it's certainly an option as well. One piece of advice I would recommend is that if you are in a court outside of housing court, and I would say even outside housing or family court, be aware that the judges and the clerks aren't always as familiar with limited assistance representation. It's becoming more common, but occasionally you will have a judge or clerk that doesn't understand the whole process. So you may want to, you, sometimes you do have to kind of push back a little bit. I have been, uh, I have been um, when I've entered an LAR appearance, it has at times been filed as a full appearance when it shouldn't be. So you might want to keep, keep abreast of that and um, you know, don't hesitate to speak to the clerk's office if it isn't done correctly, because unfortunately in some courts it just isn't as common elsewhere. But LAR is a great option. It can be used again across from most trial courts in Massachusetts. And 
I really encourage people to take advantage of it. Okay, um, I'm back on again, I believe. Yep. Uh, okay, thanks, Larry. Um, so back to talking a little bit about how you can get involved with volunteering at VLP. Um, let me first say that we are facing an access to justice um, crisis um, as the moratorium on eviction expires on October 17th and the extended um, moratorium on C CDC type COVID related is going to be, the cases are gonna be heard um, as well. Um, there are some predictions that we may have 60,000 people across the state of Massachusetts facing eviction. Um, VLP is really trying to ramp it up, get as many volunteers as we can to help with these um, basically online hearings and online mediation. Um, so I'm hoping that folks who are here today are here because they're interested in helping with that. I have put in the chat both the VLP website and um, the um, email address for Miranda Black, who is our um, pro bono manager. If you email her directly, she can get you into our volunteer um, group and um, you will get put on a rotation to assist with these hearings. Please know that you will always have mentoring. You will always have backup. VLP covers malpractice insurance for our volunteers on VLP cases. And, um, and so you will not be left out flapping in the wind is what I always say to folks. We're behind you all the way. Um, this backlog uh, may not, we may not see it start to see the huge numbers of cases until the end of October, but we need to go ahead and get folks up and trained and ready to go. When you look at the VLP website, please notice that we've added um, video trainings. We've been trying to do some quality video trainings of some of our trainings. And um, there's also through the Mass Law Reform and, um, Institute and on our website, a, um, a training, uh, interactive training on summary process. So it's kind of the first step in recognizing what happens in these summary process cases. I open it up so that people can volunteer for as much or as little as they want. We try to create these um, bite-size, I keep calling them bite-size pro bono opportunities. You can just agree to help people in mediation um, or you can agree to follow a person with a series of LARs in a case but never are you, unless you choose to go for full representation, full representation, are you required to remain in that? Um, I think now we can say any questions that you have, please put them in the chat room and we will take some time to try to answer those. Um, but please take a look at the VLP website. Larry and Adam, thank you so much. Um, both of these guys, I'd like to say, kind of started cutting their teeth through VLP and volunteering and working. And, um, and so we're very grateful um, to, to the folks who continue to work with us, who don't really um, forget about us. Um, it's not the people who leave, it's the people who come back, I believe was the line Ross used about Barry Gordy. So um, thank you guys. Please send your questions here and, um, and we'll answer them. I assume they can still come to us even after the webinar is over, but that's a question for Doug. Thank you. Yeah, so the panel is open for questions. You've got the little Q&A box down here on your Zoom if you want to type in questions there. And to piggyback on what Joanna said in her kind words about helping out at the table and things like that, it is a very small and professional and collegial community at the housing court. I can't tell you how many times I've 
asked another attorney a question about a case or ran by a situation with another attorney, even if they're a landlord attorney, I talk to them about the tenant situation I have and vice versa. So it's a very tight collegial community and everybody is very generous with their time. You can certainly reach out to people by phone or email if you have an issue. And of course, VLP has great resources and always there with some help too if you get into a sticky situation. All right, so we have the first question, which is, does VLP have the forms of the various documents required to establish an LIR rate relationship? Um, not only do we have those forms, we have them um, in different languages, and um, we have them for different types of cases and for different levels of appearance. So um, you will not have to, um, you'll not have to reinvent the wheel. Um, the next question is, besides the VLP videos, are there any other resources you recommend to get up to speed? Um, I do think for LAR, the manual that you've been given here, um, BBA is offering a series of trainings on housing court. Again, a question for Doug, I believe those trainings are recorded. So the last training, which was the basics of landlord-tenant, um, might be your second step after doing the interactive training summary process that is in um, BLP, on BLP's website and the Mass Law Reform Institute website. Mass Re Law Reform put that together with a grant and it is very well done. Um, I would just jump in. MCLE also has some great resources on landlord-tenant law. Um, their trainings are very good, so take a look at those as well. Yes, they do. And if you're taking an active volunteer with VLP, we have um, we have ways that what are they called vouchers? So that you take those trainings for thirty-five dollars, um, which is is a bargain. They're they're really good. All right, well, if there's no more questions. Um, there is a question right now. There's a oh. question, can recent law grads and bar takers pending mass submission appear in an LAR case? Joanna, you can take that. I don't think they can, but. Um, they can't do an actual appearance in the court for LAR, um, but under the, the um, supervision of an attorney, you can assist an attorney with a mediation um, and that may be something that would be really helpful during these times when we're facing 60,000 folks. So um, when you reach out to Miranda, again at mblack at vlpnet.org, um, please um, let her know your status and we can figure out if there's an opportunity for you. Um, the next question is, do you need to do anything else to be certified for LAR? I think we need to have like a little knighting ceremony here. Um, <laughs> attest to being certified in LAR. I would suggest reading that manual because for many courts it is about reading the manual and you'll have some maybe um, you know getting it in in two ways hearing it and seeing it. Um, you'll remember all these things but then you can be sure you can now you can now attest to being certified. One thing just to conclude, um, we will be having another training at the BBA on frequently arising issues for tenants and landlords. That will take place on Wednesday, October 14th from 11 to 1 p.m., 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, we encourage you to register for this program as well, and I have included the link to do so in the chat. Uh, if you have any questions, please reach out to me, Doug Newton, at dnewton at bostonbar.org. That's D-N-E-W-T-O-N at bostonbar.org. Thank you all. Thank you.
Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.